we have completed our 14-part series on the book of Galatians. But one question remains unanswered. What happened after Paul sent his letter to the churches in Galatia? In Acts chapter 15, we get our answer. The Judaizing heresy had become an issue of concern far beyond Galatia. In response, the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church convene a church assembly, known to us as the Jerusalem Council. The assembled churches and those who attended wanted to hear about the great success of the Gentile mission. But they also must address the controversy in the churches, which arose precisely because so many Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The question being asked in many churches with large numbers of Jewish converts to Christianity is, must Gentile converts live as Jews? How does the law of Moses apply to the people of God in light of the gospel? And although Paul addressed these matters in his Galatian letter, the issues raised by the Judaizers were being debated throughout Judea, and especially in the city of Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were currently ministering. It became necessary for the collective churches to meet in Jerusalem and to respond to this ongoing Judaizing controversy, and we'll talk about that in the next few minutes. I'm Kim Riddlebarger, and this is a postscript to our Blessed Hope podcast series on the book of Galatians. In this postscript episode, we'll look at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, and then I'll answer some listener questions before wrapping up with some comments on N.T. Wright's new commentary on this book of Galatians. As a postscript to our series on the book of Galatians, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 15 and wrestle with the question, what happened after Paul sent his letter to the churches in Galatia? Well, frankly, we don't know what happened in the specific congregations receiving Paul's Galatian letter, but we do know how the church at large reacted to Paul's rebuke of the heretical movement we know as the Judaizers. In Acts 15, Luke recounts what has come to be known as the Jerusalem Council, when Paul, the apostles Peter and James, along with the elders of the church, addressed the Judaizing heresy with the full authority of the assembled church, a synod or a general assembly, if you will. This is one of the most important turning points in the book of Acts, and goes a long way to help us see how the early church governed itself and then dealt with heresy. The Jerusalem Council reached full agreement about the gospel Paul had preached to the Galatians, that all people, whether they be Jew or Gentile, are saved in exactly the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. We know from Paul's Galatian letter, as well as the account of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, that the Judaizers were dividing the church by misrepresenting the teaching of the apostle James, that was found in his epistle, and then pitting James against the preaching of Paul. 
The Judaizers claimed that James and Paul disagreed about how sinners are justified or given a right standing before God, and that James was right and that Paul was wrong. What transpires during the Jerusalem Council goes a long way toward reconciling James' prior statement in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, where James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that, in contrast to Paul's seemingly conflicting comments in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we believe in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. The Jerusalem Council was called by the Apostolic Church because Paul's first missionary journey throughout Asia Minor, which is now eastern Turkey, had been a huge success. Through the proclamation of the gospel given him by Jesus, as well as through the demonstration of God's miraculous power, God confirmed the still largely Jewish church's mission to the Gentiles. The result was a harvest of Gentile converts to Jesus Christ. But it was not long after that the Judaizers in the party of the circumcision took issue with Paul insisting that these new Gentile converts live as Jews, that they submit to circumcision, keep the Jewish dietary laws, and observe the Jewish feasts. Gentiles must believe in Jesus, but obey the law of Moses if they are to be justified. The statement by James in his epistle, the teaching by Paul throughout the region of Galatia, and the attack upon Paul's gospel by the Judaizers has to be addressed if Jew and Gentile are going to coexist in Christ's church. If there was to be clarity about the gospel, well then this fundamental question has to be settled. What place does obedience to the law of Moses and ritual circumcision play in relationship to the gospel of free grace and justification? Are the Gentiles to obey the law of Moses and submit to circumcision in order to be justified? And if not, how are Gentile Christians to relate to Jewish believers within the Israel of God, as Paul calls the church in Galatians 6.16, this new society, this mystical body of Jesus Christ, which is the church, called out by God himself, created by God himself through the proclamation of Christ crucified? How are people to get along with each other? Most historians date the Jerusalem Conference, the Jerusalem Council, in the year AD 48 or 49, and that would be shortly after Paul had written his letter to the Galatians. But the tensions that led to the council had been present for some time. By the time the Council of Jerusalem meets, the first missionary journey was completed, with Paul and Barnabas staying on in Antioch, which is a city in southeastern Turkey. The sheer number of converts proved God was calling Gentiles to faith in Jesus. It also became clear that Israel's own prophets had foretold that in the last days, which of course was still hundreds of years distant when they wrote, they foresaw that the Gentiles would share in the promises that God had made to Israel. And so, for example, as far back as Genesis 22:18, 18, 
God had promised to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. And then the prophet Isaiah in chapter 49, verse 6, he saw a coming age in which the servant of the Lord, who's none other than Jesus of Nazareth, that that servant will be a light to the Gentiles and will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The prophet Zephaniah in chapter 3, verses 9 to 10 of his prophecy revealed that in the Messianic age, the Messiah himself will purify the lips of the assembled nations and all those gathered would call upon the name of the Lord. The prophet Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 22, he spoke of an age when the nations would assemble at Jerusalem, seeking the Lord Almighty. And so, yes, Israel's God will bless the Gentile nations, and he will bless those nations through Israel. The question now being answered in the Jerusalem Council is how will God extend that promised blessing from Israel to the Gentiles? Now, once the Pentecost of the Gentiles, as it's called, occurred in the household of Cornelius, a Gentile, as recounted in Acts chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 18, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Gentile converts, just as it occurred with Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, the success of the first missionary journey indicated that God blessed the practice of preaching directly to the Gentiles apart from any connection to the Jewish synagogue. Tensions increased between those Jews who converted to Christ but held tenaciously to their old ways and those teaching that Gentiles need not obey the law of Moses or submit to circumcision in order to be justified. Add to this the increased political tensions arising with Rome after the death of King Herod Agrippa in AD 44, well, the situation was rife for confusion and for controversy. It's highly likely that Paul wrote his Galatian epistle before the Jerusalem Council was convened. As we saw when we looked closely at Galatians chapter 2, verses 1-11, through 11, Paul already encountered the deception of those he calls false brothers who were spying on Gentiles exercising their freedom in Christ. These false brothers, the Judaizers, the agitators, were attempting to return Gentiles to the status of slaves, presumably slaves to sin because of the attempt to be justified by the performance of Jewish rituals. That's what the Judaizers were saying Gentiles needed to do. But Paul tells the Galatians in chapter 2, verse 5, we did not yield in this submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. For Paul, this was a debate about the gospel. There is nothing trivial here. And those who sided with the party of the circumcised, the Judaizers, were teaching what Paul calls another gospel, which is no gospel. And in doing so, Paul says, they come under God's anathema, his curse. They have fallen from grace. And as we said earlier, those are very strong words. The pressure exerted by these false brothers to deny that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, was so great that even Peter grew weak in the knees and he momentarily caved into them and he withdrew from table fellowship with Gentiles. That's before he was sternly rebuked to his face in front of the church by Paul. And that's recounted in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But now the leaven of the Judaizers had spread from Antioch to Galatia to the north, and now to Jerusalem to the south. What Luke records in Acts 15 is nothing less than the apostolic church confirming that the merits of Christ, which alone justify, are received through faith alone, 
apart from works of the law, that is, we're justified by faith and not by good works. The controversy came to a head when a delegation of Judaizers arrived in Jerusalem from Antioch, teaching that salvation was not by faith in Christ alone, and seeking a hearing with the elders and the apostles, presumably to get Paul's theology straightened out. And so in the first four verses of Acts 15, Luke tells us, But some men came down from Judea, and were teaching the brothers, Unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Now apparently not convinced by Paul's argument in his Galatian epistle, nor his subsequent preaching in Antioch, the Judaizers sought to go over Paul's head and gain a hearing with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, where several apostles were present, James and Peter among them. The Judaizers flatly denied sola fide, the apostolic teaching that were justified by the merits of Christ received solely through faith alone. Instead, they were teaching that every Gentile convert to Christianity must believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but in addition, must also submit to circumcision as a sign of their obedience to the law of Moses. According to these Judaizers, if you did not receive circumcision as a Gentile, then you cannot be justified. Now, already on record where he stood on this, Paul, along with Barnabas, again found themselves in sharp dispute with the false teachers. And so Paul and Barnabas, along with the others chosen by the church in Antioch, immediately headed south to Jerusalem so that the matter could be settled once and for all. Along the way, Paul and Barnabas visited the churches in Phoenicia and Samaria, encouraging the churches everywhere they went with the first-hand accounts of how God was bringing salvation to the Gentiles, just as promised in the Old Testament. And so reaching Jerusalem, they were warmly welcomed before the Jerusalem church, and they reported to the apostles and the elders all that God had done on their first missionary journey with Gentiles. The success of preaching Christ crucified among the Gentiles provoked those who sympathized with the Judaizers to respond to what they felt was Paul's incomplete gospel. Paul didn't require enough of people. Not just faith, but obedience to the law of Moses. Well, what exactly is the nature of the dispute? It's spelled out for us nicely by Luke in verses 5 through 12 of chapter 15. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are we putting God to the test by 
placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Although we have to read between the lines a bit, it's clear from Luke's account that the Judaizers from Antioch found willing allies in the Jerusalem church among some of the Pharisees who likewise had embraced Jesus as the Messiah, but who also felt that Gentiles must be circumcised and needed to obey the law of Moses just as they were doing. We don't know if these converts to Christianity from the party of the Pharisees fully endorsed the idea that Gentiles could not be saved if they did not submit to circumcision. But at the very least, we can make an educated guess that they're worried about the threat of antinomianism. The idea being that if Gentiles were taught free grace and justification sola fide, that created a situation in which people would simply say they embraced Jesus as Lord, but continue to live as pagans, flaunting their liberty in light of Jewish scruples about law-keeping and circumcision and observing feasts and dietary laws. These are the same matters Paul had addressed in his epistle to the Galatians. Now, like most church meetings, it's not until there had been lengthy deliberations that the leaders of the church, likely in the presence of the whole assembly as mentioned in verse 12, that Peter stood up and he addressed these Pharisees. Peter reminded them that he himself had preached the gospel to the Gentiles in fulfillment of God's command. And the result was that God gave the Gentiles the blessed Holy Spirit at Cornelius' house, just as the Lord gave the Spirit to the Jews at Pentecost. The Creator of all people made no racial distinctions between Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles' hearts were purified by the blood of Christ, received through faith, which is a clear reference to the forgiveness of sins and to justification. Not one of them was justified through obedience to the law of Moses or through submitting to circumcision. And so Peter here is echoing Paul's rhetorical question from Galatians 3 verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, after Paul's rebuke of Peter, which we've seen in Galatians 2 verse 11 and following, Peter then, in the presence of the assembled church in Jerusalem, affirms without equivocation the doctrine of justification by faith alone and not by works of the law. And so the Judaizers now stand condemned, not just by Paul, but by Peter as well. In verse 10, Peter makes what can only be described as a startling admission, describing the law of Moses as a yoke a yoke the Jews could never bear. And he asked the assembly, why then turn around and place that same yoke upon the Gentiles? No, says Peter, we're not saved through obedience to the law of Moses. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And so here Peter's affirming sola fide and sola gratia. The law does what God intended it to do. It shows us our sin. It pushes us to Christ. And apart from Christ, obedience to the law of Moses is a yoke that none of the sons of Israel, nor the sons of the early church, nor anyone living today could bear. Well, once Peter had finished speaking, Paul and Barnabas took their turn, 
telling the assembly about the miraculous things that God had done during their first missionary journey. And the church became silent, spellbound, as they heard about the conversion of a local proconsul named Sergius Paulus. That story is in Acts chapter 13, verses 6 through 12. They learned that judgment befell Simon Bar-Jesus, who opposed the gospel. And Paul and Barnabas recount the story of the whole of city in Antioch, that whole city turning out to hear the gospel when Paul and Barnabas were thought to be Greek gods as a result of God's healing of a man who had been lame from birth. And perhaps they told of how there had been countless conversions and how in opposition to the preaching of Christ crucified, the Jews stirred up trouble. If God did such wonderful and mighty things among the Gentiles and blessed the first missionary journey so richly, how could the Judaizers claim to have the truth? Well, the assembly has fallen quiet. All opposition by the Judaizers and the Pharisees to the Gentile mission and the gospel of free grace has been silenced. After Peter and Paul and Barnabas had finished speaking, it was James's turn to speak. The Lord's half-brother was known as James the Just because of his deep piety. As indicated in Acts 12, verse 17, James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, which perhaps had been modeled after the Sanhedrin, where the president of the gathering was considered to be first among equals. We do know, sadly, that James was subsequently put to death by the Jewish high priest Ananus in AD 62. According to Christian tradition, I'm quoting, James was self-denying and scrupulous in keeping the law. The Judaizers within the church looked to him for support. Therefore, James' response was eagerly awaited, especially in light of his comments in the second chapter of his own epistle. And so in Acts 15, verses 13 to 21, we hear James speak and address the assembly. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. After Paul and Barnabas finished recounting God's work among the Gentiles, well, it's James's term to speak, calling the assembly to order using a formal address, Brothers, listen. James understood that God had visited the Gentiles, calling them to be a people for his own name, fully agreeing with Peter's assessment. James even applies to the Gentiles a designation from the Old Testament, which formerly had been used only of Israel. James appeals to the prophecy from the prophet Amos to make this very point. According to Amos chapter 8, verse 11, In the last days God will rebuild David's tent and restore it, a reference to a restored Israel in the Messianic age. 
and that restored Israel was composed of those elect Jews who embraced Jesus as the Messiah, described elsewhere by Paul as an elect remnant according to grace, as he says in Romans 11, verse 5. According to James, in addition to those Jews who embrace the Messiah, there will also be a number of Gentiles who seek the Lord and who also bear his name, but who remain ethnic Gentiles. In effect, James is contending that, and I'm quoting, no attempt should therefore be made to turn Gentiles into Jews. That's from Richard Longenecker's commentary on the book of Acts. This refutes any idea that Gentiles must become cultural Jews in order to be justified, keeping the law of Moses or submitting to circumcision if they wish to belong to the people of God. In the coming Messianic age, membership in the new Israel is no longer based upon a racial ethnic distinction between Jew and Gentile. Membership is solely based upon faith in Jesus. There is now one people of God, composed of Jews and Gentiles who look to Jesus for salvation and who can keep their distinct ethnic identities and culture, even though members together of the new Israel and the body of Christ. This is what James understands the prophet Amos to be saying. And so agreeing with Peter and Paul and Barnabas, James too felt that the church should not make it difficult for Gentiles to come to faith in Christ by placing in their way the stumbling box of the law of Moses and circumcision. Instead, James contends that the church should instruct Gentile converts who were justified by faith alone to live in gratitude before God and no longer live as pagans once they embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And so James counsels the church that Gentile converts should abstain from those things that characterize the pagan religions of the age and which were, rightly so, utterly offensive to Jews, eating food that had been sacrificed to idols, practicing sexual morality, which was often connected to pagan fertility rites and temple prostitution, and the drinking of blood, which was also connected to pagan rituals. James' rationale is summed up in verse 20. Moses is read in a synagogue of every major city where the Gentile mission had gone. For Gentiles to continue to do such things would have been as much of an offense to the Jews as the Judaizers demanding circumcision and obedience to the law was to the Gentile. It would be much easier to keep the focus where it should be, on the saving work of Jesus Christ, if the Gentiles were not doing those things which were so offensive to Jews. This would also remove the ground for the charges the Judaizers were no doubt making against the Gentiles and their habits. Once they spied on their liberty, they could report back that the Gentiles were doing all these terrible things that were truly offensive to Jewish sensitivities. Well, in verses 22 through 29 of Acts chapter 15, the council renders its decision. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. And I'm quoting, this is in the text, this is the text of the letter sent from the Jerusalem Council to the church in Antioch. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, 
to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. As we can see in the text of this letter, verses 22 through 29, James's exhortation has carried the day. The official decision by the Jerusalem council, which was reached by the whole council, was to be sent in earnest back to the church in Antioch via letter. Now, it's no small thing that the apostles and elders in the whole church were in complete agreement. Says Luke about this, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and that stresses the church's role as the vehicle of the Spirit's operations. Such a thing is unprecedented in the New Testament. The Spirit blesses the corporate decision of a deliberative body. The letter produced here was then sent to the church in Antioch via Paul and Barnabas, along with two other prominent leaders in the church, Judas and Silas, who would serve as witnesses to the council's decision. So, once the group reached Antioch, the church there assembled, the letter was read, and all were greatly encouraged by the decision. While God's favor toward the Gentiles and the doctrine of justification was reaffirmed, the Gentiles are told not to do those things that antagonize Jews. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, that's a matter Paul's going to take up in great detail in his letter to the Corinthians in chapters 9 and 10. Animal sacrifices taking place in the local temples was very common in Paul's time, and there was always more meat than the priests could consume, and so in an age before refrigeration, this leftover meat, this extra meat, was sold immediately after the sacrifice in markets or by the priests. And so, in that setting, there's a very close association between the animal's flesh and the pagan ceremony in which it was sacrificed. The Jews avoided eating this meat. Furthermore, the Gentiles were to be careful about eating things that grossed out Jews, such as the ritual drinking of blood, which was associated with certain Greco-Roman sects, such as the washing in blood by the priests of Kibbele, or things killed by strangulation. And then finally, the Gentiles were to adopt a biblical sexuality. No sex before marriage, which is fornication. No sex outside of marriage, which is adultery. Or no same-sex relationship, which is homosexuality. Gentile converts must give up their mistresses and stop engaging in improper sexual relationships. These things are not only forbidden by God's law, but Gentile indifference toward these kinds of prohibitions very clearly offended pious Jews, and again, rightly so. So what happened when this letter was read in the church in Antioch? Luke tells us in Acts 15 verses 30 through 35. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. 
And so after Silas and Judas had edified the church in Antioch with their own preaching, they returned home to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Paul and Barnabas stay on in Antioch because a second missionary journey was about to begin. Well, it's obvious there are a number of important points made in this passage. First, despite the ethnic and cultural differences between Jew and Gentile, both groups were equal and full members in the Israel of God, which is Christ's church. As Paul made clear in his Galatian letter, the gospel is not based upon human obedience to the law of Moses or submission to circumcision, which supposedly made the Jews superior to the Gentile. It is clear that the gospel is the preaching of Christ crucified, through which God in his grace calls his elect to faith in Jesus Christ, whether they be Jew or Gentile. The law of Moses had been an unbearable yoke for the Jews. It was given by God to Moses precisely for the purpose of showing the people of Israel their sin and driving them to seek the coming Savior. To turn around and now insist that unless a Gentile kept the law and was circumcised in order to be justified was to deny the gospel. God had blessed the Gentile mission. No one could deny that. And Peter and Paul and Barnabas and even James were in full agreement about this. The Judaizers and those sympathetic to them are fully and completely repudiated by the assembled church, which includes the apostles and the elders. Justification, sola fide, is therefore the doctrine of the apostolic church. James 2 must be read in light of Acts 15 and Romans 4, and not the latter in light of the former. Second, we need to notice that the church is clearly given birth by the proclamation of the gospel, so that the assembly which met in Jerusalem renders its judgment upon those who deny what the scriptures so clearly teach. The gospel is revealed by Jesus as a fulfillment of what Israel's prophets had foretold. Despite the contention of the contemporary Roman church that this text shows the supposed equality of the authority of the church with that of the authority of scripture, the exact opposite is true. The Jerusalem Council makes its determination from the Scriptures, or as directed by the Holy Spirit, in words which are now Scripture. And so when Peter speaks of Paul's letter as Scripture in 2 Peter 3.16, he's probably referring to the fact that the epistle to the Galatians and the gospel of justification sola fide was that to which the Old Testament had pointed all along. There is no sense here that the church has authority over Scripture merely because it has apostles, as the Roman church claims. But Acts 15 is also problematic for advocates of congregational or independent forms of church government or church polity, because the idea that the local church has no connection to other congregations, or that individual Christians are not under the authority of elders, that simply doesn't comply with the calling of the council, its purpose, and the decisions made by that council in Jerusalem. And so despite not possessing Robert's rules, the Jerusalem Council clearly demonstrates the rule of elders, men who are on the same footing as the apostles when the church as a whole assembles to resolve this important dispute. The apostolic church then is neither Roman, that is Episcopal in the Roman sense, nor congregational in its government. It is Presbyterian. It is ruled by elders who assemble in a plurality, to make and render a decision. And the council renders a decision which is considered binding on the churches. 
and as Luke says, doing that pleased the Holy Spirit. The practical consequence of the Jerusalem Council is that the preaching of the gospel creates the church and gives us our unity. Despite all our personal differences, our disagreements, our cultural diversity, when we gather together around the proclamation of Christ crucified, are baptized into Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, receive the sacrament of his body and blood, we who are diverse become one. If Jesus Christ is at the center of our faith, it's because he is the Lord of all, and therefore we do not need to look alike, or think alike, or vote alike, to have the kind of unity which Scripture says is characteristic of Christ's church. All of us are under the authority of Christ, exercised through his word and sacraments, and which is made manifest in each local congregation by elders who rule to ensure the fidelity of teaching and preaching in that church to Christ's word and the gospel whenever Christ's people gather together as a church. And then finally, we learn from the Jerusalem Council that our unity arises from the preached gospel. Preaching the gospel precludes us from putting stumbling blocks in the way of those who are not Christ and who need to hear the preaching of Christ crucified. James's speech indicates that while we need not give up our individual cultures, nor be forced or shamed in doing those things that violate our own consciences, we're not to let these things get in the way of our collective mission as a church. If non-Christians are to hear the gospel from our lips, then we can't place our own personal agendas or allow our foibles to block the paths of those who are perishing in their sins. The offense of the church is to be the gospel it preaches, not its members. Unfortunately, the opposite is often the case. Too often, non-Christians are driven away because we offend them through stumbling blocks of self-righteousness. That's a shame and it's a sin. But if people hear the gospel and are offended, well then, so be it. Let the scandal of the cross be the offense, not us. Acts chapter 15 and Luke's account of the Jerusalem Council reminds us that the apostolic church placed its confidence for all of its life and its missionary endeavors clearly upon the gospel of free grace and justification, sola fide. Paul's gospel was revealed to him by Jesus. It is therefore the church's gospel. And let us do as the first church did, and place our confidence in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who comes to us through his preached word and through the proper administration of his sacraments. This same Jesus is preached by Paul and James and Peter, and he feeds us with that manna from heaven, his own body and blood, through his word. Through faith in Jesus, we who are many, become one. Our sins are forgiven. We are accounted righteous because Christ's righteousness is now ours through faith in the same Jesus who is preached by Paul and Peter and James and then affirmed by all the elders of the Jerusalem Council. God's promise is to bless the nations through Israel. It's a reality and we who live at the ends of the earth listening to this podcast are the proof. Well, as we have seen, Acts 15 is a foundational event in the life of Christ's church. 
Paul and Barnabas report on the success, this great success of the Gentile mission. Peter and James and the assembled elders affirm the gospel which Paul and Peter had been preaching, which is that God saves Gentiles by grace through faith, just as he had done with Jewish believers in Jesus. And having reached an accord through the leading of the Holy Spirit, the church composed and sent that letter to the churches as recounted in Acts chapter 15, verses 22-29. That letter affirms both the truth of the gospel while offering ways for Jews and Gentiles to enjoy fellowship in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've enjoyed this first season of The Blessed Hope, please tell folks about the podcast who you think might be interested in the kind of thing we're doing, which is offering an in-depth exposition of the biblical text. And I'll have an announcement soon about my plans to get The Blessed Hope on the standard podcast feeds like Apple and Spotify and so on, and I'll announce that on my blog and by social media. Show notes for each episode of The Blessed Hope Podcast can be found on my blog. That's the Riddle blog, kimriddlebarger.com. Look for the Blessed Hope Podcast tab at the top of the page. And, and also on the blog, you'll find links to years of sermons I preached at Christ Reformed Church, lectures I've given, information about my books, and a bunch of publications which are unique to my blog. That's the Riddle blog, kimriddlebarger.com. Well, I promised all along to get to listener questions, and there are several good ones, so let's spend some time and go through those now. So one listener asks, when you say that Luther and Calvin got it mostly right, and N.T. Wright and the New Perspective get it mostly wrong, what do you mean? Well, I mean that Luther and Calvin correctly understand Paul's gospel. They understand that Paul's doctrine of justification entails the forgiveness of sin which is centered in Christ's substitutionary atonement, as well as the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer. That's a righteousness that's been earned by our Lord in his personal life of obedience to the commandments of God, imputed to us, and we receive that righteousness or the merits of Christ through the instrument of faith. And so I think it's very clear that both Martin Luther and John Calvin are faithful students of Paul and faithful proclaimers of his gospel. Well, as we've seen, New Perspective Advocates just glibly dismiss Paul's doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness received through faith alone. N.T. Wright calls this the fundamentalist notion of getting saved. Well, Bishop Wright, you've never been in a fundamentalist church because if you had been in a fundamentalist church, you know they care very little about the doctrine of justification being imputed righteousness. Wright also reduces Christ's cross to the so-called Christus Victor model, that is, on the cross, Jesus defeats the principalities and powers, which, of course, he does. But then Wright ignores or redefines the redemptive language that Paul uses elsewhere to describe the death of Jesus. Wright's view of the cross is, is very narrow and very limited. Luther and Calvin were faithful students of Paul. They don't downplay the language of reconciliation or propitiation or substitution, nor do they ignore the language of God's holy wrath against sin. They understand Paul's gospel correctly, while the NPP very widely misses the mark. Martin Luther and John Calvin can tell me, how can I, a sinner, be made right before a holy God? But the NPP tells me that that's not a question that Paul even addresses, and I don't need to concern myself with it. 
What Martin Luther and John Calvin get wrong is really a matter of methodology. And I'm, by that I mean the advances made in biblical studies, especially after World War II. The Reformers' focus is largely upon using Paul's Galatian letter against the, the Pelagianism or the semi-Pelagianism of the Roman Church on the cusp of the Reformation. That's what commentators did at that time. They state and defend their doctrines in light of current controversies from the pages of the biblical text. Well, I agree and endorse and confess with them their assessment of the errors of Rome, and I wholeheartedly concur that Paul's doctrine of justification had been distorted throughout the centuries, and the commentaries of Luther and Calvin and others were designed to expose and correct that error, and they did exactly that. But what the NPP has done, and which is really helpful, is to pull our focus back from current controversies to the historical issues that prompted Paul's letter in the first century to the churches in Galatia. Galatians was written to correct the Judaizing heresy, not to respond to Rome. Although once we've established the historical circumstances of Second Temple Judaism and looked at the region of Galatia, it becomes patently clear that much of what Paul says in response to the Judaizers, does indeed apply to Rome. Yes, the historical situation in Galatia, Jerusalem, and the nature of Paul's Gentile mission must be of prime concern when we read or study this epistle. But that concern was secondary to the Reformers. We need to understand what Paul is saying in the historical context and then draw application instead of going straight from the text to the contemporary controversy. So what I mean by that is don't just read Martin Luther, although it has exceptional devotional value and his passion and clarity about the gospel, just nobody comes even close. Read Martin Luther's commentary in Galatians after you've read a scholarly commentary like Doug Moo, or even after you've looked at the notes of something like the ESV Study Bible as you read through the book of Galatians, as I've been encouraging to do. Read through Galatians first, look at the study notes in your Reformation Study Bible or your ESV Study Bible, then read Martin Luther. I think that's the, the way to go here. That way you'll appreciate the devotional quality of Luther and yet understand the historical situation in Galatia. Several listeners have asked about the role of table fellowship in Galatians 2. Why is this such a big deal? Well, the issue of table fellowship is important for both the new perspective and the old perspective. For James Dunn and N.T. Wright, the Issue is that Jews were showing a sinful propensity to boast about their ethnic badges. They had the law, Moses. They had circumcision. Remember Abraham the Gentile? He was circumcised as an act of obedience. They had the feasts that celebrated the great redemptive moments in Israel's history. And they had the dietary laws, all things that separated them from Gentiles. And so, as the Judaizers sought, the Gentiles must embrace these things in order to be justified. According to the New Perspective, Paul's doctrine of justification means that Gentiles are numbered among the people of God apart from these ethnic badges. So, the New Perspective defines works of the law as Jewish ethnic badges, and so justification is not about how a sinner can be counted as righteous before God. That is legalism to them. Neither is justification about getting saved or the doctrine of soteriology. But rather, Paul's doctrine is about who is already in the church. This is covenantal gnomism. You're in by grace, you stay in by obedience. Jews refusing table fellowship with Gentiles exposes the rift 
that Paul's doctrine of justification is designed to correct. Well, the all-perspective folks see a number of critical errors in the new perspective reading of Galatians 2 and this idea of table fellowship. For one thing, it's clear that Paul's use of works of the law refers to keeping God's commandments. That's much broader than reducing everything in the book of the law to merely these ethnic badges. Galatians 3, 10 and following makes that point very clearly. For another, justification by faith is about how sinful people are declared righteous before God. That's by faith, not through obedience to the law. That's hardly the fundamentalist notion of getting saved. Finally, yes, table fellowship is an issue in Galatia because Jewish Christians did refuse to eat with Gentile Christians. Peter had embraced that practice too, since Jews regarded the Gentiles as unclean because they did not see obedience to God's commandments as necessary to be regarded as righteous. How could someone not circumcised be said to be in compliance with the commandment, and therefore righteous? Abraham, a a Gentile, he supposedly proved his obedience to the covenant by submitting to circumcision. So then, Paul's letter to the Galatians is a refutation of Jewish legalism. It's not about ecclesiology, even if Acts chapter 15 might be. And that explains why Paul spends so much effort to condemn this Judaizing error as a grievous heresy, which he in fact anathematizes. Paul recounts to his readers, who are misreading the Old Testament, that Abraham was justified before Yahweh by faith in Yahweh's promise to deliver him from sin, not because he obediently removed a piece of his foreskin. And Paul's extended argument in Galatians 3-4 through flies directly in the face of the new perspective view of works of the law, which denies that this is about a right standing before God, justification, and that this debate is merely about improper Jewish boasting. No, this is a debate about whether Gentiles must be circumcised to and live as Jews to become or remain Christians. It's not a matter of Jews merely boasting about their ethnic and cultural superiority over Gentiles. Paul's answer to Jewish legalism is to preach and teach and clarify a doctrine of justification by free grace received through faith. And the new perspective gets that wrong. Well, as we wrap up our postscript in our series on the book of Galatians, a few comments about N.T. Wright's commentary on Galatians are probably in order. Now, of course, it would figure that N.T. Wright's standalone commentary on Galatians would come into print right after I began this series. At some point, I hope to go through the entire 400-page volume thoroughly and give it the attention it truly deserves. But I've not done that yet, so I'll offer just a few quick observations from skimming the volume. I had really hoped for a more exegetical tome, but the series in which the commentary is published is entitled Commentaries for Christian Formation, and it's the first in a new series published by Erdman's, designed to help readers teach or preach on the book of Galatians. The series claims to be balanced between exegetical work and historical content, promising to promote 
Christian formation. I'm assuming that means Christian piety. Christian formation is one of these rubber words that can be used in a whole bunch of different ways in contemporary evangelicalism. Let me say from the outset that Wright's commentary seems to be a mixed bag. Even with a once-over lightly read, there are some brilliant insights which we expect from Wright, who, in my opinion, is one of the best theological writers living. I always enjoy reading his work, even when I want to throw the book against the wall. But it is clear, especially in the condescending tone of the introduction, that Wright has a thing against classical five-solo Reformation evangelicalism, which far too often comes in the form of a backhanded dismissal of those who would challenge his view. He all but says, if you want footnotes and technical information, then read Moo or a number of other contemporary commentators that he lists. And with that, deft move, Wright really does effectively avoid interaction with his ever-growing circle of critics. I've taken to calling N.T. Wright Black Knight Wright, in light of the famous Monty Python's quest for the Holy Grail scene in which the dreaded Black Knight has both his arms and his legs chopped off by King Arthur. Left defenseless, the defiant Black Knight still challenges Arthur with great bravado. It's only a flesh wound! refusing to accept total defeat in the loss of all his limbs. While I now use that moniker in light of the fact that Wright's views on a number of things have been challenged, and his arguments have been thoroughly unraveled. Benenti Wright just goes on his way, refusing to acknowledge that such criticism might have merit. Charles Lee Irons' recently published doctoral dissertation, The Righteousness of God, absolutely decimates Wright's view that righteousness refers to the righteous judge, not Christ's righteousness imputed to the believer through faith. Mike Horton, in his two volumes on justification, challenges Wright's view in a number of places, especially Wright's very poor grasp of the justification debate throughout church history. And Tom Holland, of the Union School of Theology in the UK, has written a decimating critique of a number of N.T. Wright's operating assumptions. And we could go on. And so does N.T. Wright, ignoring this kind of criticism. I get Wright's reluctance to defend himself in every volume he produces. His views are well known. He stated his views a number of times. He's interacted with some of his critics, but not the most influential ones mentioned a bit ago. I knew what his Galatians commentary would say before I opened it. I may change my mind after I read it thoroughly, but from a once over lightly, it's exactly what I expected. But I really want to emphasize the fact that his book should be read carefully because his voice is significant. But I'm no longer impressed by the ongoing refrain, I'm Tom Wright, I'm the world's leading authority on Paul, I'm a bishop in the C of E, my book sold lots of copies, on and on and on. None of Wright's critics can claim anything anywhere near that, and Wright knows it. But when you write a commentary in Galatians, you'd better be prepared to interact with your critics because your view of table fellowship and works of the law as mere ethnic badges is the basis for your rejection of the Protestant doctrine of justification via the imputed righteousness of Christ's sola fide. When you reduce the cross of our Lord to the Christus Victor model, when you define the gospel as merely Jesus is Lord, and then dismiss the historic Protestant doctrine of justification as a fundamentalist notion of getting saved, well, that kind of stuff just can't go unchallenged. And, and Bishop Wright, you need to answer your critics when it comes to the text of the book of Galatians. 
So at some point, I'll review Black Knight Wright's commentary in Galatians. I expect a, a good read. I'm sure I'll find many brilliant insights. I'm sure I'll have to walk back some of my snide comments here. But I'm also pretty sure I'm going to find the same old, tired, new perspective dismissal of Jewish legalism, criticism of justification via an imputed righteousness, and a very narrowly and poorly defined cross of Jesus Christ. I'm pretty sure that's what I'm going to find. Well, thanks so much for listening to the first season of The Blessed Hope. And until next time, Maranatha, the Lord come.